0: We turn in sacred scripture to two passages from the gospel of Mark or according to Mark, Matt or not Mark Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew 5 starting at verse 27 and then also Matthew 23 starting at verse 16. Matthew 5 starting at verse 27. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself. You shall not uh, go against what you've sworn. Break your oaths. But shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is His footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, Because thou canst not make one hair white or black, but let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Those last few verses we will be looking at in the preaching, as well as Matthew 23. Let's turn there as well, Matthew 23, starting at verse 16. Matthew chapter 23 is also well known because this is the chapter in which Jesus speaks all kinds of judgments upon the Pharisees. He spends the whole chapter doing this. We pick it up at verse 16. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind for whether is greater, the gold, or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift, or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. It's on the basis of these passages of Scripture that we have the teaching of Lord's Day 37 of the Heidelberg Catechism, found on page 22 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 37. Question and answer 101. May we then swear religiously by the name of God? Yes. Yes. Either when the magistrates demand it of the subjects, or when necessity requires us, thereby, to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. For such an oath is founded on God's word, and therefore was justly used by the saints, both in the Old and New Testament. May we also swear by saints, or any other (coughs) creatures? No. For a lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely which honor is due to no creature Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ herewith lords day 37 The Catechism focuses in on one particular aspect of the Third Commandment. Remember last week, we looked at the Third Commandment, and we looked at it quite thoroughly. Remember the Third Commandment, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And although we did look at that third commandment quite thoroughly last week, we did not look in detail at two specific ways in which the third commandment can be broken. Two specific ways that the Catechism did mention last week. Perjury and rash swearing. Notice answer 99, that we not only by cursing or perjury, but also by rash swearing, Must not profane or abuse the name of God. We didn't focus last week on the idea of perjury or rash swearing, and so that's what we're going to look at in detail this morning. And that's really what the catechism is doing here in Lord's Day thirty-seven. It's taking the extra time to explain these things more carefully. Now, to get to right to the point, we could ask, "What is perjury, and what is rash swearing?" Perjury is lying under oath or lying even after you've called God to be your witness that what you are saying is true. When you stand up in a court of law and you declare, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, you are making an oath. May God witness that what I am saying is true. And then should you lie after making an oath, You are committing perjury. You are lying under oath. What is rash swearing? Well, rash swearing involves a number of things. Rash swearing involves swearing oaths casually. Swearing oaths for things that are trivial and insignificant. We may not do that. Rash swearing also includes swearing oaths in connection with something that you don't know anything about. Obviously, you're not being very careful with your oath if you are making oaths about things that you don't know anything about. We may not do that. And rash swearing also includes swearing oaths about something that is contrary to God's word, or something that's impossible, or something that requires you to commit sin, like swearing Allegiance to a secret society that, that requires you to sin. We may not do that kind of thing either. Now, in both these things, perjury and rash swearing, what we've done is this we've made an oath. We, that is, we've called upon God's name and we've asked God to bear witness to what we are saying and to hold us accountable to what we are saying. In the oath, what we are really saying is this. Should I not speak the truth here, I ask that God not help me anymore in life, but rather I, go- I ask that God might actually bring down His holy wrath upon me and utterly destroy me in hell. And you see right away that to lie under oath, to swear an oath casually, without considering who God is and, and the destruction He can carry out, Without considering who God is as the God who hates lying. And then to lie under oath is to really treat God lightly. And hence it is to take his name in vain. When I use this kind of language, I swear, I swear, I am really saying, May God utterly destroy me in hell if what I am saying is not the truth. And that's why the oath is brought up here in Lord's Day 37. Because it has to do with honoring God's name. Not treating God lightly. That's what we look at this morning. Swearing an oath. We look at three things. First, we see that this is a proper thing to swear an oath. Second, we have here a sad reminder as we talk about these things. And then third, we end with a comforting thought. And then we remember remember what our perspective is. We want to show the Lord our thanks. For the salvation and deliverance He has given us in Christ. So we want to keep His commandments. That's how we show our thankfulness. Well, we might look at Lord's Day 37 and ask, why does the Catechism devote an entire Lord's Day to this? Of all the Ten Commandments, the third commandment receives is the only commandment that receives double treatment. Why this special treatment? Well, the main reason is that at the time the Catechism was written, this was a very serious question, whether it was even proper for people to swear oaths. And so the Catechism handles this and says, yes, swearing oaths is a proper thing to do when it is done right and when it is done with holy reverence before God. Now before we see why swearing oaths is a proper thing to do, let's make sure we have clear what an oath is. I already said it in the introduction, but let me say it again. The oath is the using of God's name for the purpose of attesting to the truth of one's statement. So when I swear, I am explicitly stating, I am explicitly stating that I am consciously standing in the presence of almighty God and I take God as my witness to verify the truth to what I am saying. When I swear, I am asking that God himself be the one to check and make sure that I'm speaking the truth. Now that makes an oath very weighty and significant. When I make an oath, I am acknowledging there is a God. There is a God. And when I make an oath, I am acknowledging that this God is the all-knowing God, who is able to discern the thoughts and intents of every man's heart, and who knows all things. And when I make an oath, I am acknowledging that this God is also the God of truth, who loves the truth, who hates the lie, and who will punish the lie with death. And when I make an oath, I am calling upon this God, this all-knowing God who loves the truth, to confirm that what I am saying is true and sincere and right. Now, if that's the criteria for making an oath, then we can easily understand question and answer 102. May we swear also by saints or any other creatures, any other created thing? No, for a lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely which honor is due to no creature. Are the saints in heavenly glory all-knowing? No, they are not. Only God is all-knowing. Do the saints in heaven have the power to punish me if I swear falsely. Certainly not. Only God has that kind of power. And so I may not give any saint or any other creature, any other created thing, this, this kind of honor that belongs to God alone. To make an oath is inherently to acknowledge God is God alone, God is great, God is true, and God is holy. And to make an oath is to acknowledge that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If we are to make an oath then, we should never make an oath lightheartedly or while we are laughing and chuckling with friends. To say carelessly, I swear, I swear, while laughing and joking with friends is to take God's name in vain. And if we hear a fellow church member speak this way, or we hear our Christian friends at school speak this way, we ought to rebuke them. This is not how the child of God speaks. To swear properly is exactly to say this. This is no laughing matter. I call upon the God of heaven and earth to utterly consume me and destroy me if what I am saying is a lie. We may not take God lightly. So that's what an oath is. That's what it is to swear now the question is, is it even proper to swear and make oaths in the first place? That's what question 101 is asking. May we then swear religiously by the name of God? Is it even possible to swear properly without taking God's name in vain? Well, the question—the reason this comes up is because there were those at the time of the Reformation, the Anabaptists, particularly the Mennonites, and there are still those today who say... That the Bible forbids us from swearing and making oaths at all. And the passage that they use to defend their position is the first passage that we read this morning, Matthew chapter 5. Listen to what we read in Matthew 5 verse 33 and the first part of verse 34. Jesus says, Again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oath. But I say unto you, swear not at all. And then listen to what he says after. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And then this is the conclusion, verse 37. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, Nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. In addition, listen to what we read in James 5, verse 12. James 5, verse 12. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. So on the basis of these passages, some will say swearing oaths is unbiblical and sinful. And so the question comes to us, how are we to defend what the Catechism says here in Lord's Day 37? Well, to answer this question, we need to do two things. And first of all, we need to look at Scripture as a whole. We need to step back and look at what Scripture as a whole teaches us about oaths and swearing. And when we look at Scripture as a whole, we notice that there are, in fact, many times when God's people take an oath upon their lips. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 24, verses 2 and 3, we read that Abraham commanded his servant Eliezer to swear an oath before Abraham sent him out to find a wife for his son Isaac. In Genesis 24, verses 2 and 3, we read, And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Swear by God that you will not look for a wife from among the ungodly unbelievers around us. This is how important this is for my son. I will make you swear an oath, Eliezer. In the New Testament, in Philippians 1 verse 8, the Apostle Paul makes an oath when he says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you. I call God as my witness, God is my record, how greatly I long after you. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 23, Paul writes, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul, that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. There are a number of other times where the Apostle Paul makes an oath in his writing. You have it in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament perhaps, as the Lord liveth, that's the language of making an oath, God do so to me and more also, that's using an oath, may God destroy me if what I am saying is not true. In the New Testament, we notice that Jesus himself makes an oath before the government. In Matthew 26, verse 63, the night when Jesus is arrested and tried, Remember, the high priest Caiaphas says to Jesus, I adjure thee, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. What the high priest is saying there, I adjure thee, is this. I command you that you make an oath. You speak before God and say right now whether you are the Christ. And what did Jesus do? Did Jesus step back and say, whoa, 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 I I don't make oaths. We, We don't make oaths. No, he simply said, thou hast said. Jesus made an oath and he answered under oath. In a very beautiful passage of scripture, in Hebrews 6 verse 17, we read that God himself made an oath. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangingness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. God wants his people to know that his promises are certain and sure. So what does he do? Not only does he speak a promise, and not only does he he repeatedly tell us that he's the God who cannot lie... And not only does he repeatedly tell us that his decree stands fast forever, but to emphasize the point, he adds even more. He says, I swear an oath. I swear by my own name that I will not break my promises. So when you look at Scripture as a whole, it becomes clear that it is not sinful as such to make an oath. The sinfulness is not in the making of the oath itself. It can and sometimes ought to be used. But now the question comes, if oaths are good, if Jesus made an oath and God made an oath and godly men made an oath, then, then how are we to understand a passage like Matthew five thirty three, and James 5, verse 12, where Je- verse 12, where Jesus says, but I say unto you, swear not at all. Well, this is where we need to do the second thing, not just look at the Bible as a whole, but now we need to look at these passages and make sure we're understanding them properly and view them in their immediate context. Here in Matthew 5, Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount. He is speaking to the Jews, and he is speaking particularly to those who are his true disciples, his people. He is telling them, how they must live as the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of heaven and its citizens and how they must live. And in the context of these verses, Jesus is emphasizing the great difference between living as a Pharisee and living (coughs) as a true citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Take, for example, verses 27 and 28, where we started our scripture reading. Jesus says there, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, That whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, Hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And what Jesus is emphasizing is that The commandments of God have to do not just merely with the outward activity, But they have to do with the inward attitude and the actions of the heart. Contrary to the thinking and the teaching of the Pharisees, Upright living in the kingdom of heaven requires more than what we might do externally. We must emphasize not merely the the outward letter of the law, but we need to get to the spirit of the law. We must observe the law of love. Love God and love your neighbor. And part of that means don't commit adultery, don't attack attack another person's marriage, don't, don't, don't use another person sinfully. Now, that's also what Jesus is emphasizing in Matthew 5, through 37. You see, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were not loving people. They were not very loving when they made their vows. It almost sounds absurd when I explain it to you, but, but this is how the Pharisees were living. What they would do, what many of the Jews would do, is this. They would make oaths. But they wouldn't use the actual name of God. Instead, they would swear by the temple, they would swear by the altar, they would swear by their heads, they would swear by the city, or by something else. And then you see these Pharisees, because they were Pharisees and they were wicked and they were hypocrites, they had all kinds of tricks up their sleeves. So that by carefully wording their oaths, it might sound to someone as if they had made a good oath, but really... They made an oath in such a way that it didn't really have to be kept as an oath. And so they would deceive each other even by how they made their oaths. So what they would do is like what some people do today, maybe, by crossing their fingers behind their backs. They would something. They, they, they would make an oath or they would make a promise, but they would have their fingers crossed behind their back, and that would somehow signify to them that they don't have to keep the promise that they just made because, while well, their fingers are crossed. And that's how the Pharisees were behaving. This is what Jesus talks about very explicitly in Matthew 23. That's why we read Matthew 23. For the Pharisees and for many of the Jews, it was like this. If I swear by the temple, well, then my fingers are crossed, and then I don't really have to keep my oath. Oh, but if I swear by the gold of the temple, well, then I do have to keep my oath. Listen to Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. That's what they were saying. That's how the Pharisees were talking. Another example, verse 18. And whosoever shall swear by the altar. This is what the Pharisees were saying. If you swear by the altar, it's nothing. Oh, but if you swear by the sacrifice that's on the altar, then you are a debtor. Then you have to keep the law. And Jesus says, you are hypocrites. You are liars. You are deceivers. You are manipulators. You are dishonest. Woe unto you. And back in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, this is not how the citizens of the kingdom of heaven make their vows or their oaths. They don't swear by heaven and they don't swear by earth, making their oaths in such a way that they think it's not a big deal to break their oaths. No, Jesus says, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven speak the truth. The citizens of the kingdom of heaven are honest in their very hearts. They are without guile, as Jesus says about Nathanael. He's a true Israelite, he's without guile, without deceit, without manipulation. And so Jesus says in verse 37, let your communication be yea, yay. Just let your yes be yes and let your no be no because whatever you need to add to that cometh of evil. It's because there's wickedness involved in your speech. Really what Jesus is emphasizing in Matthew 5, what the catechism is emphasizing as well are three things. First, We may not swear lightly or irreverently or hypocritically to call upon God as our witness. That's what swearing is. And that we may not do lightly. Second, we may not swear by any creature, by any created thing. We, We may not swear by anything other than God. God alone is the one who should receive this honor. He is the one alone who knows the heart. And then third, the general principle is this. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. We who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven ought to be those whose speech is trustworthy. We ought to be those who are known for our honesty. Being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven means not only that you keep the letter of the law, but that you truly love your neighbor by dealing honestly and truthfully with him. And so Jesus says at the end of verse 37, Anything less than being honest in your everyday speech arises out of the evil that is in your heart. And any light and trivial swearing that we do arises out of evil and is sin. Because it's taking God's name in vain. We come then to the conclusion of the matter. Swearing oaths is proper. But it is proper exactly as the Catechism puts it in answer 101. Yes either when the magistrates demand it of the subjects or when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity, faithfulness, and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. For such an oath is founded on God's word and therefore was justly used by the saints, both in the Old and New Testament. Swearing an oath is proper, but only when it is necessary and truly fitting for the occasion. And when we do it for the good of our neighbor, and for the cause of truth, and for the glory of God, such an oath is proper. It's not sinful. But now we may ask, why are oaths necessary in the first place? And here we come to the second point of the sermon, the fact that we even need oaths, and the fact that an oath even exists, is a sad reminder And it's a sad reminder of the fact that all men by nature are liars. All of us are liars by nature. That's why there is the oath. We wouldn't have the oath if all men only spoke the truth. That's clear when you consider a number of things. In heaven, we won't be making oaths in the technical sense of the term. We will never be saying, I have God as my witness that what I am saying is true. Because in heaven, it won't be possible to lie, nor will anyone ever doubt the truth in heaven. We will simply know the truth. We will be living in the truth. Truth will be the atmosphere of heaven, and we will always be surrounded by the truth. Even here below on earth, in the church, among God's people, the use of the oath should be rare. Reverend Herman Huxmo said in one of his writings that throughout the course of his ministry, it only happened once or twice that the consistory deemed it necessary to place someone under oath. It was necessary at those times because an individual had shown that his word was not trustworthy. He, he, he was a liar. He had treated the truth lightly once before, and now he must be called upon God, ex- to, to call upon God explicitly as his witness that what he now is saying is the truth, lest God should punish him. Again, the real reason why an oath might be necessary in the church is because of the reality of sin in one way or another. Now, in government, in, in the civil government, oaths are maybe more frequent, and rightly so, especially in the courtroom. Again, the reason is the same. Oaths exist because man, by nature, is a liar, and the government knows that. And the government cannot assume and may not assume that every one of its citizens will speak the truth in the courtroom. And so the government has the authority to do as much as in it as much as lies in its power to prevent lying. And so they have the authority to ask of their citizens to take an oath, to call God as witness that what will be said and testified to is the truth. So oaths arise out of the fact that there is sin in the world in one way, in one form or another, and that man by nature is a liar and a sinner. But now we might ask, well, why don't we make oaths more often in church? Remember, an oath is, technically speaking, calling on God. Verbally calling on God as my witness that what I am saying is the truth and asking God to utterly destroy me and damn me to hell if I do not say the truth. Now, when I bring my child up for baptism and I make my baptism vows, we we call those vows. Those are promises to God and promises before God. Solemn promises that we will do something. That that we will take out a certain activity. Technically, those baptism vows are not oaths. I do not call God as my witness that what I am saying here is the truth. I simply say, yes. I let my yes be yes. When someone makes confession of faith, when two young adults will make confession of faith this evening, it will simply, it will be a simple yes. When elders and deacons are installed into office, technically no oath is made. It's simply another promise. When I was installed this past summer, technically speaking, I did not take an oath upon my lips. When the questions were put to me, this is what I said, yes, truly with all my heart. And we might ask, well, why don't we have people calling upon God more often, more explicitly, to be a witness to our promises and vows? Why don't we make oaths more often? Well, the answer is twofold. First, because in the church, among God's people, we treat each other as fellow citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We don't treat each other as Pharisees. We treat each other as citizens in the kingdom of heaven, those who have the spirit of Christ in them. And therefore we treat each other as those who are honest and upright and speak the truth and love the truth from the heart. We are children of the truth, so we understand that we speak the truth. We don't doubt each other's word. We trust each other as brothers and sisters. And then secondly, in the same connection, because we are citizens of the kingdom, we understand by default, that we're always living before the face of God. We're always in the presence of God. In all our thoughts, in all our actions, in all our interactions, we ought to be living in the conscious awareness that we're always standing before the presence of Almighty God. God is the great reality in my life and in your life. The child of God wakes up in the morning and he lives before the face of God. He goes to work for the day and he works before the face of God. He interacts with his family and with his co-workers and his fa- fellow church members constantly aware that God is a witness to everything that he says and everything that he does. That's how the child of God lives. That's how we strive to live. And so when we make our vows in front of the church or we make our, make our baptism vows or confession of faith vows, we don't need to put our answer in the special form of an oath because we all understand the one who makes the vow The congregation as a whole, the minister who's putting the questions to the people, we all understand right now we are standing in the presence of God. When we make our vows, not only are we saying yes before the church, but we are saying yes before the very presence of God. We take that for granted, we might say. And that's where we're following Jesus' instruction simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. To me, it really shouldn't make a difference whether I make an oath or not. Now, it does, and I've experienced it because I've been tested. Applying for citizenship, you're asked to make that oath. Put your hand up and make the oath, and then you think twice about this. Well, it does make a difference, but, but in a sense, we should always be speaking and living before the face of God. And that's why the Catechism says we take oaths when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. And yet, we understand that the oath is necessary because men are by nature liars. We don't always speak the truth. And we must confess as well, we don't always live before the face of God as we ought. We are not as faithful in our vows as we are called to be, as we vowed to be. We do not keep our vows perfectly. In fact, we often neglect and ignore our vows. We do not love our husbands or our wives as we vowed we would. We do not raise our children to the utmost of our power in the fear of the Lord all the time, perfectly. We do not resolve to live in holiness all the time. Our sins are many. And they are great, and our shortcomings are many. Our sinful natures lead us into sin. Indeed, we must confess that except it were for the grace of God, we couldn't keep our vows at all. And consider this, there will come a day when God will judge every single oath and every single vow. And we will be judged as well. But in all these things, even seeing our sins, our failings and shortcomings, there is a comforting thought. And that's where we need to end with this morning. That's what we need to end with this morning. And that comforting thought is this. Though we are so often unfaithful to our promises and our vows, and we should keep our oaths, we should be so careful with the oath that we know I can keep it and that I'm speaking the truth. So I'll leave that, but... We know we are unfaithful with our promises and our vows. But God is always faithful to the promises he has made and the oaths which he has sworn. When it comes to God and God keeping his promises, there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is always faithful to his promises. What are his promises? They are many, and yet really they can be summed up in this I will be your God, and you will be my people. God has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God has said, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. God has said, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me and I will pardon all their iniquity whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. God has said, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God has said, Fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. God has made promises, and God has proved himself faithful to his promises again and again and again. And he proved himself faithful, especially by sending his only begotten Son to die for our sins on the cross. And Jesus kept his word perfectly. And He did so on our behalf. That's what He did. He lived the perfect life of keeping His vows and keeping His promises and keeping His oaths as our substitute that in Him we might have this perfect righteous standing, this perfect keeping of all God's law. He is our righteousness when it comes to this third commandment. And God proved Himself faithful by forgiving all our sins. And he provided the legal basis for it too by sending his son to to die on the cross. And God proves himself faithful every day as he preserves us by his grace and he leads us day by day as our great shepherd. He is faithful to his promises. And you can be sure, congregation, he will be faithful to the uttermost. He has promised heaven to his people, he has promised you heaven. And he will see to it that you, his elect child, arrives there safely. He did it yesterday. He does it always because he is always faithful. God has sworn an oath. He will keep it. We are his people for Christ's sake and for his own name's sake. For the glory of his own name and for our eternal bliss. Because He loves us. He will be faithful. And He will lead us to glory. May that thought comfort us. Even as we look at this third commandment again. We see the reality and the weight of what an oath is. We look at our vows and our promises. And we, we see our shortcomings and our sins. And we see the again the provision God has given us in Jesus Christ. May all these thoughts comfort us. And then also fill us with greater zeal for living to the glory and honor of God's name. Striving to keep his commandments because we are thankful. He is faithful to his promises. Now let us, who are his children, who are being renewed after his image, more and more endeavor to be faithful to our promises. God gives us the grace to do so. God God give us the grace to do so. And he does. He gives his grace and his spirit to those who are thankful for them and who with continual sighs ask them of him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, help us to rest in the oaths that thou hast made. Help us to cling to the promises thou hast spoken to us and then also give us the grace to reflect thy own faithfulness in the carrying out of the promises and vows that, thou hast, that we have made and that thou hast put on our lips and in our hearts. In all things, Father, may we reverence thy name and see how deep and broad this third commandment is. And may it help us seeing this to give Thee our thanks and give Thee our praise, striving to do Thy will, equipped by Thy helping grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.